Hello, and welcome to episode 57 of our Global Tech Swamp podcast. For our final episode of 2022, we're being joined by Graham Dufault, original friend of the pod and general counsel here at ACT for a 2023 global policy look ahead. We'll be talking through potential regulations, upcoming global policy themes, and the impact they could have on small to medium-sized businesses on a global scale. Stephen Tulip, our UK membership and engagement manager, joins us as well to keep us in the loop on all things UK. And of course, we still have our host and friendly podcast team here today. Hey, Anna. Hello. Hello, Brad. How are you? Just dandy. Just dandy. And Caitlin, what is up? I am membership chilling. In the membership office. We're in person today. It's very exciting. Um, And of course, I am Alex. (laughs) So um, before diving into our 2023 policy look ahead, we'll talk tech history and the top global tech headlines. This tech history, we're taking a look at gifts from holidays past and comparing what gadgets were on wish lists 10, 20, and 30 years ago, all of which I was alive for, which makes me sick. Anyway, (laughs) 10 years ago in 2012, some of the top tech gifts for the year were the iPhone 5, the Wii U, and really anything from the Angry Birds universe. Um, Taking it back two decades, in 2002, the top tech gadgets and gifts were the second generation iPod, TiVo with a one-time lifetime subscription, and the Nokia 6100, one of the first cell phones with a color screen. I remember that well. Uh, And 30 years ago in 1992, some of the most cutting-edge pieces of tech you could get, you could give, and get really, were the IBM ThinkPad, one of the first accessible laptops for home use, the Nintendo Game Boy, not color, and any CD you could get your hands on since 1992 was the year CD sales surpassed cassettes. Wild. And the rest is tech history. And now on to Bites and Brews. Anna, Brad, and Caitlin, what is going on in the news? Epic Games will pay a record-shattering $275 million civil penalty for alleged violations of the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, otherwise known as COPPA. They will also turn over an additional $245 million for using dark patterns to dupe millions of Fortnite players into making unintentional purchases. This is the largest FTC administrative settlement ever. And speaking of COPPA, Congress may be rushing to include significant changes to COPPA. COPPA 2.0, if you will, in the end-of-year spending package called the Omnibus. While we and our members support children's privacy, making these rush changes during the the end-of-the-year scramble could lead to unintended risks for developers and consumers alike. For more info on the Omnibus and what's being included, head to the show notes. In Europe, the EC escalated a probe into Meta's ad service. Quote, our preliminary concern is that Meta ties its dominant social network, Facebook, to its online classified ad service called Facebook Marketplace, said the European Union's competition chief. This means Facebook users have no choice but to have access to Facebook Marketplace, end quote. EU's antitrust enforcers are also also concerned about Meta imposing unfair tradition conditions that allow it to use the data of online classified ad services that those businesses cannot access. 
Meta now has an opportunity to defend itself in writing and request a closed-door hearing with the EU antitrust enforcers before the commission makes its final decision on the charges. Meta faces a fine of up to 10% of its global turnover. Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of failed crypto exchange FTX, was scheduled to testify last week before the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services. However, he was arrested in the Bahamas less than 24 hours before he was set to testify. He's now been extradited to the U.S., and although he indicated that he would contest his extradition, he has since changed his mind and arrived on the morning of December 19th. Last week, federal prosecutors announced a grand jury had indicted him on eight counts of wire fraud, securities fraud, money laundering, and a campaign finance violation. We'll be sure to keep you posted on all things FTX in future episodes of the pod. And before we dive into our 2023 global policy look ahead, here's a little EU spoiler. The upcoming Swedish presidency of the EU Council published its political priorities for the next six months, and digital policy is not high on the list. (laughs) Sweden is taking charge of the EU Council for the first half of 2023, and according to the Swedish presidency's official program, digital policies will not be top of mind. Instead, the EU Council aims to tackle security, economic resilience, and the energy crisis, all spurred by the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. We'll be sure to keep you posted on the EU Council's agenda throughout 2023. And that's all for what's brewing. And as we mentioned earlier, we're being joined by Graham Tufault for a 2023 Global Policy Look Ahead. Uh, Graham, we are so excited to have you join us uh, so we can talk through some of the major happenings that could impact small businesses on a global scale in the year ahead. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. It's the best time of the year, Global Podcasts. One of my faves. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so before we hear from Stephen, Graham, let's pull out our policy crystal ball and dive into some of the policies and regulations that will be following us from 2022 uh, into the new year, and uh, if history has told us anything uh, in years to follow. Um, so with that sort of in, in mind, um, let's, let's kick off this conversation with privacy and cybersecurity. Um, so longtime listeners know that we have been talking about data privacy and security since the beginning days of the pod and have been calling for the year of privacy for, for even longer, um, based on 2022 activity around the privacy patchwork here in the U S and the U S EU data privacy framework. 2023 has some major global privacy themes ahead. So, Graham, in in terms of a federal privacy law here in the U.S. versus the state-level privacy patchwork being laid out, um, what what can we expect in 2023? Well, there there has been a lot of activity, and certainly we would have hoped to see a little bit more movement in 2022. So the TLDR on 2022 really was... In the, on the House side, we saw the Committee of Jurisdiction, the Energy and Commerce Committee, um, put a bill through the process, a bipartisan bill, and it got a vote of 50 to 2. So it was an overwhelming vote in favor of a big overarching privacy bill that would have set a single national standard. There were some exceptions to the preemption provision there, but in, all in all, it, it, uh, it checked a bunch of the boxes that we were looking to see checked. Not a perfect bill but it went through the committee, and that means that the next step for it um, would have been to go to the floor and to have a a vote in the the full House of Representatives. 
That did not happen for a few different reasons, um, partially because the California delegation was hearing from the California state that they really didn't want California law to be um, you know, preempted by right. the federal bill. Uh, and then you had a bunch of different interests coming out of the woodwork and having you know, last minute issues that they needed to see ironed out. Anytime you have a really big overarching bill like this, you're gonna have um, people coming out of the woodwork with, with questions and um, issues that weren't spotted before. Um, so on, on the state front, we did have a few states enact uh, privacy laws. So we have now a total of five. It's California, Connecticut, um, Colorado, uh, Utah, and Virginia. So we have five. And so now we have sort of a, a, the patchwork that is starting to, you know, grow outwards. And that's five that have just been passed. Those right? are, yeah, those are enacted. Those are enacted and, and actually, you know, in law. Um, but in uh, most state legislatures, we saw, you know, general privacy bills being considered. And some of them got really close to being passed and, and enacted, and you can expect those in 2023 to come to come back up. So, in the 118th Congress, you know, next year, in the year after, we're probably going to see, um, at least on the House side, they're going to start where they left off. So they're going to start with that bill that went through the the committee, mm -hmm. and then they're going to start negotiating around it. Um, and that is what we expect to kind of happen right out of the gate. Unclear how how likely it is to, to go through. We have a Republican-led House, a Democratic-led Senate, um, a really narrow margin in the House, which <laughs> limits their flexibility and what they they can sort of do over there. Um, but with that sort of split, you have to wonder what what the possibilities are. Um, and uh, so the, the, there's a bunch of political difficulties layered on top of it. But if there's anything that they could sort of agree on, because you had wide bipartisan agreement on, on the big privacy bill, this is uh, something that really could happen next year. And uh, we can't call this the year of privacy next year, but <laughs> because uh, we've done that, we've done that too many times. But, <laughs> it's the Maybe decade of privacy for. at this point. <laughs> We could just do that. I like that. <laughs> okay, so this is the decade of privacy. <laughs> to a really good start, two years in. Um, and so I think uh, you know there there are some great possibilities, and we'll definitely be um, you know working with Senate Commerce, House Energy and Commerce to, to try and craft that. Um, but in the 2022 Look Ahead podcast we did last year, we said we could expect to see some movement around the old EU US privacy shield agreement. I know that earlier this year that came to fruition and the EU and US entered into a new agreement that will continue to be worked out into the new year. So Anna, could you give us also a lay of the land when it comes to the new US-EU privacy framework? In September, President Biden unveiled an executive order on enhancing safeguards for United States signals intelligence activities to create the legal framework necessary for the previously announced transatlantic data privacy framework with the European Commission. So they agreed on the framework first and then this executive order was released. And the framework essentially paves the path toward reinstating the transatlantic data sharing mechanism that was previously known as Privacy Shield. Before that, it was Safe Harbor. It was struck down twice, so we'll see if this one holds up. <laughs> um, and so now this this is the, the, the completion of the first formal step that the United States needs to take to complete that journey to basically win the European Union's trust back. Um, and so, so 
the most recent development here was that last week, December 13th, the European Commission um, launched into the process um, of adopting a so-called adequacy decision for the EU-US data privacy framework. And that means that the European Commission decides whether or not a country provides the sufficient safeguards that kind of are equal almost to the level of um, data protection that GDPR provides. And so the commission released a preliminary decision on, on these um, transatlantic data transfers and that concluded that the framework provides comparable safeguards to those of the EU. And they have now transmitted this preliminary decision to the European Data Protection Board um, for its opinion. And also the 27 member state data protection agencies need to give their feedback on the commission's preliminary assessment. And then also the members of the European Parliament have to um, make a non-binding decision, but they give a recommendation essentially um, before this can finally be the yeah final version of the of the adequacy decision. And the commissioner responsible for the for the um, privacy framework, Didier Randez, has said that this will happen before summer 2023. So in the next six months, hopefully, before they go on summer break in July, that will that will happen. But we'll keep you posted. It seems like a lot of people still have a say here. Um, but with the commission approving the framework preliminarily, we expect it to also be successful at the end of the day for now, <laughs> until Max Schrem sues again. So. <laughs> Stephen, uh, the UK has had some activity around privacy that our members have been involved with. Um, so on December 9th, 2022, the UK government's Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, or DCMS, um, published a voluntary code of practice for app store operators and app developers. Um, can, can you talk to us about like what this means for our UK members? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's weird that we uh, lump digital culture, media and sports together in one department, isn't it? But that's, it's like that's a fun UK thing. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, put them all together. Um, so yeah, the code sets out eight core principles and is intended to help protect users from malicious and poorly designed apps by setting a minimum security and privacy requirements. These principles have been arrived at following a public consultation earlier this year in May 2022 and engagement with stakeholders, including ourselves at the App Association. Yeah. And so can we can we sort of lay out those like eight core principles you mentioned? Because, you know, it's dealing with privacy and I'm assuming there's some overlap with existing laws um, like GDPR. Yeah, there are some overlapping provisions in the DCMS code and GDPR, which I'll come on to later. But the overlap shouldn't cause any complications and compliance is expected to be seamless. The eight principles are as follows. So number one, ensure only apps that meet the code's security and privacy baseline requirements are allowed on an app store. And this requires that app stores implement vetting processes, end user reporting systems and takedown procedures for apps that are clearly malicious. Number two, ensure apps adhere to baseline security and privacy requirements such as through using industry standard encryption, limiting permission requests, and adhering to the principle of data protection by design. Number three, implement a vulnerability disclosure process so that vulnerabilities can be reported to the App Store operator without them becoming publicly known to malicious actors. Number four, keep apps updated to protect users, including by fixing known security vulnerabilities. Number five, provide important security and privacy information to users in an accessible way and details of stakeholders that will have access to the data. 
Number six, provide security and privacy guidance to developers. Number seven, provide clear feedback to developers where an app submission is rejected or where an app is removed for security or privacy reasons. And number eight, ensure appropriate steps are taken when a personal data breach arises, including the steps required to be taken under UK GDPR. All in all, these provisions are things we're excited to get behind. Yeah, definitely. And um, back in September of this year, we had some members, um, honestly, globally, um, we had members from the EU, the UK and the US all met with DCMS uh, staff to kind of talk about um, the SME perspective on this. Um, and and I think that was a really good meeting. And I, and I know that they took some of our feedback into uh, the final version of the regulation, which is always exciting to hear. Um, so speaking of our members, um, we obviously have to talk about the impact and effect um, that this is going to have on them. So um, I guess my question there is, who is this framework really aimed towards? Um, and how then will that like impact our members in 2023? Yeah, sure. I don't know if you know, but um, our chairperson, Mike, and I were in London uh, after that meeting that you mentioned happened. And we had a follow up meeting with DCMS, which was really useful because we got to kind of see how they'd incorporated the suggestions that our roundtable had brought up and to add a few a few extra tweaks as well based on member feedback. Um, but the code's principles, you're right, apply to stakeholders in the app ecosystem. And this includes app store operators, app developers, and platform developers. So yeah, it's aimed at our members, but as long as uh, small businesses continue to have access to things like platform provided security tools, this framework is something we're excited to see unfolding in the UK. Now, moving forward, there will be a nine month period for stakeholders to adhere to the code and DCMS plans to hold meetings with App Store operators in early 2023. Uh, written reports will also be requested from App Store operators in spring 2023, and the code will be reviewed and could be updated after two years. And in the UK, we're going to be doing our best to keep our members informed uh, as we get the information from DCMS uh, at the start of next year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and sort of related to that, is there anything else that we should be keeping our eye out for in 2023 as far as UK privacy law is concerned? Yeah, it's going to be a busy year. We, uh, we did mention GDPR earlier, and the UK has its own version that we need to monitor in the coming year. So the UK uh, GDPR, which in its current form basically mirrors EU GDPR, is probably going to be revised next year. And that's because of, of Brexit, obviously, where they're, they're looking to make changes to to uh, existing legislation. There's also the online safety bill, which applies to companies hosting user-generated content and providing search engines. And that's expected to go through the parliamentary process early next year. And the UK government has also announced its intention to reform the regulation of digital markets and the existing competition and consumer law by introducing a new Digital Markets Competition and Consumer Bill. Uh, the bill is expected to face its first reading in Parliament in spring 2023. So yeah, it's going to be a, a busy year policy-wise. What do laws that are radically different, like what we're seeing in the US, the EU, and the UK, you know, what does this mean for compliance on a global scale? Um, are small businesses slash SMEs um, affected differently when it comes to compliance? And what would we like to see in like a perfect data privacy world for our members? Yeah, there's no question that compliance on this kind of scale globally 
uh, really is different for small and medium enterprises than it is for really big companies that have really big compliance departments. Um, so there are a couple of things that ideally we would like to see. Number one is an adequacy determination that, that you know, ultimately decides that the, the new framework is going to be one that is adequate under, under EU law. Uh, and then, you know, secondly, in the United States, we really need to catch up to Europe and other parts of the world when it comes to setting uh, a set of rules across the nation uh, for privacy and for data security, which again does not yet exist. And part of the reason we need to do that is to uh, sort of rationalize our laws in a way that looks a little bit more like what, what's taking place globally, uh, but also ensuring that we do not have wildly different ways of regulating price privacy across our states. So there are a couple of ways of doing that and then you know in a, in a federal privacy law and in the bill that we just talked about that passed the Energy and Commerce Committee, um, one of the ways it tries to bring small companies up into compliance is by having uh, a compliance program where uh, if if you're a company under a certain size, you can certify to compliance with um, a set of guidelines. And then you get sort of a presumption that you're in compliance and you're not subject to civil penalties uh, in the first blush and, or, or in the first um, investigation that you might be under from, from the Federal Trade Commission or from a state attorney general. So that's a huge um, uh, benefit for the ecosystem because it, it's not a complete carve out from the law. You know, it doesn't say to the market that, hey, small companies can't comply with the privacy regime. It says, yes, they can, but they need some help and resources to, to do so. And the compliance program, they call it a safe harbor in the COPPA program, um, helps, helps accomplish both of those things. So those are a couple of things that in an ideal world could, could happen and would really make, make the compliance environment sort of more doable for small companies. Um, and this is even more crucial now as Congress and regulatory bodies in the EU are looking to <clears throat> unfortunately strip critical platform provided infrastructure around privacy and security. Slightly switching gears here, but not too much since you just mentioned that they're related. But what can we expect when it comes to competition and antitrust legislation and regulation here in the U.S. next year? There have been two bills in the 117th Congress that we can likely expect to see in the 118th, I believe? Yeah, and those bills are, um, number one, the Open App Markets Act, and number two, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, so OAMA and ACOA, as they're sort of referred to since. Um, <clears throat> since it's a city run on alphabet soup. <laughs> it's alphabet soup, exactly. So, I mean, <clears throat> so, the, so OAMA, the Open App Markets Act, tries to um, prohibit a number of the app store management functions that uh, that app, app stores new, use right now. And ACOA, the, the bigger bill, is sort of a, a macro version of that applied to um, a, a list of different kinds of platforms. So retail platforms, search platforms, social media platforms, and app stores. And it's the same style of regulation where it's a it's a prohibition on discriminating on the platform in a way that favors the platform's own offerings um, and uh, also prohibiting um, 
uh, uh, disadvantaging other offerings. So, so what? Obviously, what we uh, what we took issue with with both of the bills is that um, you know at at their core they are a, sort of a must carry requirement on on platforms. So in the App Store context, it is you you have to distribute an app or you have to distribute um, or you have to you have to carry an app unless you can show with a lot of evidence that you are, have removed the app or decided not to carry the app for, for example, privacy reasons or security reasons. Um, that sounds not, not terrible, uh, but because it sort of flips on its head the, the presumption, so the presumption is it's illegal to, to remove an app, um, that makes cybersecurity, that makes privacy, uh, that makes a whole series of app store management functions that we, you know, we sort of currently rely on right now um, not enforceable, and that, um, uh, for example, we had a we had a big settlement that the FTC entered into today, where it found the the violating company to have violated COPPA. It was a, it's a it's a it's a record fine on COPPA, but the company was also using quote unquote dark patterns, where it was uh, making it really hard to unsubscribe, making it really hard not to be charged for something that you didn't mean to get charged for in a video game, and <clears throat> those are the kinds of reasons you get kicked out of the app store right now and if you make it illegal for the app store to kick you out for those kinds of things um, then we stop being able to rely on the app store as, as being sort of a trusted space that's especially important for for smaller companies that are trying to sell in the app stores and distribute and reach their customers and clients there um, so that's a little bit about why why those those bills were a problem for us there was a late last ditch effort last week to try and get open app markets act in in the end of your spending bill it sounds like it's not going to be included, but um, it goes to show that there, there really is a, a well-funded and serious effort behind trying to get it enacted anyways. And so that's why I think we will see it be you know, reintroduced along with the American Innovation and Choice Online Act in the 118th Congress next year. And that reintroduction will be you know, followed by a lot of debate, a lot of discussion. Um, I think it's less likely that they can get the, those bills moved forward this uh, this next Congress, um, and in part because you are going to have a split Congress. You're going to have a Republican House, a, a Democratic Senate, and there's a lot of disagreement between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to what the biggest problems are in with big tech. I think it, it's a bipartisan sentiment that big tech needs to be you know reined in or, or regulated. Um, but there are all these different ways in, in, uh, in which Congress is thinking about you know, addressing the issues and a fundamental disagreement about what the biggest problems are. And so that, that will create confusion, um, and it will probably mean that most of the activity that we will see will, be, will come from the Biden administration, will come from independent agencies like the Federal Trade Commission, and um, the Department of Justice's Antitrust Division, both of those agencies have ongoing antitrust investigations. I think we will see in the first quarter of next year or maybe like halfway through next year, probably a conclusion to some of those investigations and, and the bringing of a case or two um, against the, you know, the big uh, uh, tech platforms. <laughs> so we'll see how that, that goes down, but um, that's, that's kind of, uh, if we're looking at the crystal ball, that's where probably most of the activity will come from.
Yeah, and I think, um, you know, the point about sort of there's this general, like, feeling from policymakers that something needs to be done about big tech in some way. We also saw that in Europe. And so while the U.S. is sort of in the stage where they're still, like, figuring it out and getting their antitrust ducks in a row, the EU is now in full swing implementing the Digital Markets Act and the uh, the Digital Services Act. Um, and so, Anna, even though these went into full force in 2022 we really won't see the effects until next year and years to come so can you give us the eu competition sort of like rundown yeah absolutely and i will say just because they went into force does not mean they're not still figuring things out (laughs) 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 because they very much are Um, more review are you kidding me um no there's not more review but now they're like figuring out how to implement so so that's a whole other I think I want to say can of worms, but <laughs> that's right. Shouldn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the DMA I think, as we have discussed many times on this podcast, is um, is a law in the EU that tries to limit the market power of large online platforms. Like Graham said, they're big on reigning the big tech platforms in in Europe, um, and so the DMA lets the commission designate large online platforms as so-called gatekeepers, and they can become gatekeepers if they meet certain quantitative thresholds, and then. Once they have become a gatekeeper officially, they need to um, comply with certain obligations and basically follow a list of can and cannot do things. And so, for example, the DMA prohibits um, platforms from self-preferencing. They have to now enable users to more easily change um, their default apps via choice screens. Um, The DMA also mandates um, platforms to allow sideloading and enable third-party app stores. And so all those things are going to have very likely a huge impact on the app economy that we will see in years to come, I (laughs) want to say. Um, And so by creating these obligations for gatekeeping platforms, the DMA um, is going to impact our members, even though our members are not actually going to be gatekeepers or directly subject to the DMA at all. Um, And so so that's a that's a concerning issue for us because the DMA will affect how the how platforms operate and that will in turn impact how the app economy can can continue to function. And and there's other concerns, for example, with sideloading that would affect user security and privacy aspects um, because platforms, like Graham said earlier, provide like an environment where privacy and security is protected. And we, we don't know what that's gonna look like when they can't do that to the same extent anymore with the DMA in force. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a wide range of impacts it's going to have for small businesses, even though they're not directly impacted. And so when I say they're still like figuring things out, there's still a bunch of key dates next year, even though the DMA went into force in October. So in April is when the DMA actually becomes what the EU calls applicable. And that is after the six month transition period after, you know, October, it went into force. And then in June, companies will have to notify the European Commission on whether they meet the criteria and fall within the definition of gatekeepers. And then July, August 2023 is when the commission officially designates companies as gatekeepers. And then again, there's a six month transition period. So by February, March 2024, exact time is yeah, a little TBD, um, but then the designated companies will actually have to comply with the DMA's obligations and the prohibitions laid out by the DMA. So we might cover this on next year's wrap-up podcast again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, but anyway, we have all of this on the blog. So there's a there's a um, DMA guide, which you can find in the show notes. And we also have a little fun flowchart uh, flow quiz to see if the DMA applies to you. 
And if you're a member who wants to provide more feedback, please reach out to Stephen or Brad. We want to hear from you and we hope the commission will, you know, want to hear from you too. <laughs> the DSA is the Digital Services Act. Can be confusing because they have almost the same letters. Um, and it also entered into force this fall a little later than the DMA. I think it was in November. Um, and the DSA does similar things. So it also tries to rein in big tech, but it's less competition. It's more so um, regulating content on the internet. So, so the DSA, DSA sets rules for um, internet platforms like Facebook or YouTube um, and others that are more content heavy um, to do more to limit the spread of illegal content and harmful content online and to just kind of hold them more accountable for societal risks that arise on their platforms within the EU. And so along with the DMA, the DSA um, tries to establish a single set of rules that will then apply across the EU for all the member states and it sets potentially a global standard in platform governance. We will, we will see that, I guess, in the next couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's interesting because it sets like certain timelines for when they have to remove harmful content and when they have to notify users of, you know, when they were mentioned. And it's, it establishes things like trusted flaggers who have to set um, flag certain content to the platform. And so just as a whole bunch of things. Um, and to us, it's a little, it's, not as relevant as the DMA, because the DMA was more concerning for us in terms of um, our members and the impact it's gonna have on the app economy. But in the DSA also, it seems like policymakers were a little more um, receptive to the concerns we had. So they actually took a lot of steps to reduce unnecessary burdens in red, tapes, uh, red tape for SMEs. So now that small enterprises aren't disproportionately impacted by the DSA. Um, and yeah, like I said, the implementation of both of them seems like there's still a lot to figure out. They will remain complex and we will continue to work with our members and with the lawmakers to ensure that all SMEs can continue to innovate and grow under those regulations as they have before. <laughs> well, staying in the EU, but switching gears to like the world of Web3 and VR, um, the AI Act has picked up some steam as of late and will probably almost certainly be a theme in the coming year. So Anna, can you kind of break down what we can expect uh, from the AI Act next year in terms of what this looks like for SMEs? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the AI Act is an interesting one because it's been, I think they initially proposed this initiative in June 2020 or around that time. And there has been very little movement until this year. Um, the Czech Council presidency were committed to pushing this forward, and now the council recently adopted its common position on the AI Act. Um, and so the AI Act basically is, is a European law on artificial intelligence, obviously, but it assigns like risk categories to AI applications and how those risk categories should be regulated. Yeah, so the AI Act assigns applications to three different risk categories. The first one is um, applications and systems that create an unacceptable risk, um, like government-run societal scoring of the type used in China. That's completely banned. The, the law prohibits those things from existing in, in Europe. Um, and then we have second high, uh, second is the higher risk applications, like a resume scanning tool that ranks job applicants. Those are subject to specific legal requirements and what those requirements be, that's still, is still being discussed. Um, and then lastly, 
applications that aren't explicitly banned as the lowest risk, um, they're largely left unregulated. And so, you know, we think this, this, this risk-based approach is pretty good. That's a step in the right direction. Um, but there's still a lot to be discussed here, especially in, in 2023. The Parliament Commission and the Council have to reconcile their positions. And that happens in a negotiation process called the Trilogue. And that will unfold in the coming year. And to give you like a little bit of a, of a sneak peek, so to say, the Parliament has submitted, I think, 3,000 amendments on the AI Act. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so there will be a lot of discussions still to come. Um, Mild. Right. <laughs> That's why I'm saying like the council, you know, they got to this position, but who knows what it'll look like in the end when they have to reconcile with the other two um, institutions. It's like um, a messy divorce. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, <laughs> but yeah, so once they finally get there, hopefully, as uh, the Europeans' intention is that it'll be a global standard, kind of like the GDPR, like the first of its kind AI regulation. Um, and then one more Web3 2023 item is that next year there will probably be an initiative on the metaverse in the EU, and that's one of the key new initiatives for 2023 as part of the Commission's Europe Fit for the Digital Age program. Um, and that's an initiative on virtual worlds like the metaverse, and it creates, um, oh, creating virtual spaces prompts some questions that are difficult for regulators and legislators to answer. And this future development is for a three-dimension version of the internet, so it's still very new to all of us, and so regulating it might be really difficult while it's still developing. Now, Graham. With the recent FTX scandal and the uptick in interest in Web3 and crypto, we can definitely expect Congress to be taking a look into the world of Web3. In your opinion, what can we expect in the coming year from Congress related to Web3? Well, I, I think you're right that FTX has really intensified interest. It's going to probably accelerate legislative activity in the early part of next year. There are, there are bills you know, that are... Um, being seriously considered that are kind of omnibus bills that get into the jurisdiction of maybe three or four different committees on the Senate and House side. And what's really difficult in Congress about passing bills like that is that um, committees don't play very well uh, together. And that, that means most likely you'll see pieces of that bill get broken off and considered separately in each of the committees. And then they'll come back together you know, on the floor uh, in an ideal world. I think there are pieces of the big omnibus bill that are probably not as ready as other parts of it. For example, stable coins seems like something that, because it's tied to um, you know, fiat currency or, or you know, something analogous, um, people understand it a little bit better in Congress and understand what the risks are gonna be like uh, with a little more certainty. And so that seems like it's a little bit easier to wrap, wrap everyone's heads around and probably has like an easier path from legislative hearing to markup to um, the, the floor of each of the chambers. So there's that piece. Um, Congress did attempt to hold a hearing earlier this year with, with Sam Bankman-Fried from FTX, but of course he was arrested the day before the hearing. Oh gosh, and, and the Bahamas. <laughs> I mean, Bahamas are nice, but that prison does not No. Really At first he was like, I don't want to be extradited, and then yeah. he was like, I will be extradited. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he was here. Yeah. So that didn't 
super hospital environment. But <laughs> Congress and the SEC really do have an appetite to act on this, and various committees have a very strong interest in making sure that we don't have a repeat of Sam Bankman-Free because that, you know, I think maybe rightfully so, the electorate will kind of look at Congress and say, what could you have done to regulate these markets <laughs> yeah. and, and prevent that from happening in the future and protect consumers? So keep your eyes peeled. We will be holding Global Web 3 webinars on healthcare and intellectual property applications and a lot more for lawmakers and regulators in the EU, US, and UK as they begin to <clears throat> navigate this space. So it's going to be kind of a broad look at all the different you know, really interesting use cases for Web 3. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's important to point out that like this is just on three of our critical issue areas, right? Like this is just a global look ahead for three of the issues that we work on. We're not we haven't even touched on things that I'm sure we'll be talking about next year, like digital health and uh, workforce development and broadband. Lots, lots more. So it's going to be a busy year, but that's really exciting. Um, and so um, we could have even said a lot more about each of these things. I know. So, yeah, we could make this a two-hour podcast. Yeah. But <laughs> knowing that nobody Sparing wants to listen, I know, right? Yeah. No one wants to listen to a two-hour podcast. So please go check our show notes because there's going to be lots of information. Stay tuned next year on TechSwamp because we're going to talk about all the issues that we talked about here and all the issues that we didn't talk about here. Keep your eyes peeled on our blog, um, on the ACT members handle, the ACT Online handle on Twitter. Um, just keep your eyes peeled because there's a lot to do, a lot of opportunities, um, and we're really excited about it. Um, so Graham and Stephen, thank you guys so much for joining us on this final episode. For 2022, it's going to be an exciting 2023. I can't wait. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Bye. And now it is time for Random Identifier and keeping in tradition, it is holiday themed. Anna, you are up first. What do you have for us? Um, my holiday themed random identifier <laughs> is that I will be able to go to my hometown in Germany and go to the Christmas market for Yay! the first time Ooh. in four years. Woo! And this is the first time they've had it since COVID. So I'm really excited because we all were nervous that it was never coming back post COVID. <laughs> but they're back. We're back. And I'm really excited to go with my parents and have some mulled wine and have some snacks and yes. buy some Christmas gifts. Yeah. Love that. So yeah. <laughs> Love that. Mulled wine is a thing that I've always wanted to try and enjoy. <sighs> yes. You can make it at home. <laughs> oh, that's true. You can make yeah. it at home. I feel like I've only ever had it at like a renaissance festival and it's like really not meant to be enjoyed there you know? no yeah it has to be cold outside yeah um <laughs> brad what do you have for us uh in keeping with tradition i will <laughs> talk about my favorite christmas song and that's run run rudolph because it has exceptional guitar work and that's all you need to interest me that's fair that. lyrics are irrelevant just cool guitar yeah that's fair yeah i accept that that's a it's a good it's a good holiday and reminder. It's on brand. Yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. think I've ever heard that song. In oh, it's life. great. What? Maybe I have and I don't know the, like, I didn't Chuck know Berry. the name. I don't I'm a foreigner. <laughs> I'm a foreigner. <laughs> I feel like that plays. Yeah, that's a good excuse. Maybe we'll crank it after the podcast. We will. That's going to be our outro. Um, Caitlin, <laughs> you are up next. What do you have for us this holiday season? Well, I thought I was going to retell, like, something that I've told before, but I realized I have a new holiday trauma that I haven't shared, which happened when I was a child. Um, I received a gift. It was, like, the 90s, so, like, I'm pretty sure I was, like, three or four years old, 
and there was a popular gift. Um, it was like basically like a, a doll that had a very lightweight body, but kind of like a heavier plastic head <laughs> because it could do somersaults. So like it was like a little like gymnast baby okay, doll okay. and I really wanted it. So I got it for Christmas and we were celebrating Christmas with my um, family in Pittsburgh this year. And so I remember like I needed to be put down for a nap because like there was a lot of external stimuli happening mm -hmm. and so I like take my new little doll up to bed with me my dad tucks me in for my nap at my grandparents house and it had snowed and it was very like icy and there were icicles from the window that were coming down and my dad was like oh we should knock those icicles down and then took my doll with the heavy plastic <laughs> head and knocked down all the icicles with her plastic head. That is extremely funny. And I swear he's gonna be like, oh, I never did this. Da, da, da. Yeah, you did. I remember. <laughs> I remember the trauma because I was like, what are you doing? Stop. And he gave her back. She was fine. Like she didn't have like any like chunks of her head missing or anything. Mm -hmm. But like, it was super weird and I hated it. So yeah. sorry to that doll. Sorry to that doll. Yeah, I hope he's listening too, Dad. <laughs> yeah. He listens sometimes. <laughs> um, I'm also going to be recounting traumatic childhood memories <laughs> well. yeah. but, but mine, I think, is also uh, now at this point a tradition, which is to just remind everyone that I really don't like Santa. He really scares me. I called him Two-Town <laughs> as a young child. And this is relevant to right now because I was recently back in Princeton, which is where I was born, lived for a long time. And... Um, Anyway, so in Princeton, there are some things to remember, which is like, A, it's affiliated, you know, obviously the university, Princeton University is there, um, but it's also like a town, but it's also a town with a lot of like deep history in the US. And um, so I don't know, for some reason, they decided that that means that it had to like lean into like Victorian styled things, which has nothing to do with the US, but Princeton, thanks. And um, anyway, so in Princeton, there's an area, there's a square, it's called Palmer Square, and there's this giant natural, it lives there year round, a uh, giant, giant, like evergreen tree. And it's very big. And the way that I would describe the decorations of this tree annually is that they just throw lights onto it. Okay. I mean, it looks like a, like a, like multiple nets made of Christmas yes. lights have been draped over this giant tree already. Um, and then they put a star on top of it. So it's very, um, bright. <laughs> and what used to happen, uh, what still happens, which is what I was reminded of when I was just in Princeton last week is that there is a man who dresses as a Victorian Santa no. who walks around and just like talks to you. And I encountered this man, um, at 8 p.m. on on Wednesday night. Did you think of it was last a ghost? Week. Well, so the funny thing is that my favorite bar in Princeton is called Alchemist and Barrister. It's a really great bar. And I had driven to Princeton after working, so I I had a cocktail. And so all I thought, yeah, I did think I was dreaming. I kind of thought I was being punked. Like I kind of thought <laughs> that like there was someone that I knew. I still have quite a few friends in Princeton, and I was just like sure it was one of them. And then it wasn't. It was the Victorian Santa. <laughs> And he was just like, ho, 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 it's Christmas. And I was like, two town, get away from me. And oh. I did, I told my mom the story and she was like, well, what did you do? And I said, I crossed the other side of the street. And she was like, did you know that you used to do that when you were little, but you were like little and you would just cross the street and like not look for cars. <laughs> and, and anyway, the same thing happened. Um, I crossed Witherspoon. It was like, I'm going to run away now. Um, anyway, so um, that's, that's my little random identifier is that as a 32 year old, human being um i am still afraid of santa well i think you should also tell people why you call him two town because santa claus is coming to town <laughs> because of the song santa claus is coming to town so that was great to town. 
Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's very embarrassing. It's smart. And people still, my mom still calls him two-town. My cousin calls him two-town. Caitlin calls him two-town. I call him two-town in she front of you. She hangs a threatening Santa on her desk every year so that I have to look at the stairs. There he is. <laughs> With that, folks, um, it is time uh, for this episode of Tech Swamp to come to its end. But also Tech Swamp in 2022. This is our last episode this year. Um, so if you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We will have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And we now have transcripts available. You can find them in our show notes as well as on podscribe.com and just search Tech Swamp. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we would love a rate review. Five stars only, please. <laughs> That's all for this year, folks. Thank you for listening to Tech Swamp. Everyone, say bye. Goodbye. Bye. bye. Happy holidays. <laughs>